Hey fam, this is your host, Amber Preston, and this is Family Drama. Some of the content in today's episode may evoke your own memories of traumatic events. We do not wish to cause anyone distress and hope you find someone in your life with which to share your thoughts and feelings, someone who can help you on your own journey to healing. Today's podcast has discussions of suicide. If you or someone you know is struggling with thoughts of suicide, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. So in the last episode, we talked about the creation of your father or a father figure in order to help you cope with the drastic changes that occurred in the first year of your life with Chalmer. I'm wondering if you have any specific memories about how you did this in your mind or what kind of process you used to create the significant person in your life. Well, I did not have a specific process in mind where I said to myself, I'm going to create an imaginary friend to help me. It just occurred. It seems like he just appeared, but I do remember a specific incident that sparked the beginning of his appearance. As I mentioned, the first year of Chalmer and my mom's marriage brought significant changes in our lives. And as a third grader, I was not doing very well psychologically or academically. Third grade is a transitional grade as it is. And you have the introduction of higher level math, like multiplication and division and You switch from manuscript to cursive writing, all those big deals back then, and science class becomes a thing. Testing increases for various reasons, and I was not doing very well in any of the academic subjects. And sometime during this school year, I recall sitting in Mrs. Wellington's classroom, and I sat in the third row in the fourth seat back, And I know this because I can, well, I could see myself sitting there as though I were apart from the person of myself sitting in the seat. It felt as though I hovered towards the front of the classroom with an ability to separate myself from me who was sitting in the classroom, if that makes sense. Mm I remember when Mrs. Wellington would meet with the various reading groups, the students that were not meeting with her would do seat work. Well, I couldn't function. I couldn't do the seat work. So I began going up to the teacher's desk after the other students turned their work in, and I would just take somebody else's paper back to my seat. (gasps) Oh my gosh. Erase her name and put my name on it as though it were mine. Oh my gosh. I could literally see myself doing that. I remember I took Debbie Payne's paper because she had really pretty cursive writing and she was a good student and I tried to copy her style of writing by writing my name and practicing it like she would do it and and turning it in as though I did it. I remember taking Sheila Gordon's paper the next day because she had this really interesting square handwriting (laughs) (laughs) and I would try to copy her square handwriting and turn it in but the bottom line is is I couldn't function in a classroom at all because I was really so 
traumatized by what was going on at home. Oh my gosh, yeah. Well, did you get caught? <laughs> well, yeah, oh. of course I got caught. <laughs> you know, it's not like, you know, Mrs. Wellington was clueless. But it didn't dawn on me while I was in the midst of taking others' papers what would happen if I got caught because it, it didn't really actually feel like me doing this. It felt like someone else. Mm. It seemed like I was observing someone else doing this. So when I was sent to the principal's office and was confronted with stealing students' papers, I refused to admit that I had done it. I was so wholly disconnected from the little girl, third row over, fourth seat back. Of course, too, it made life miserable at home. Chalmer threatened to beat the truth out of me because I was a lying little bitch and so forth. And I came to realize that in order to survive the abuse and trauma at home and in order to exist, that I would need to change my personality. So quite subtly, as I began to hear a voice, a male voice that gently said, you cannot survive this way. You have to find a different way. I can help you. Let me tell you how to do this. Oh my gosh. Wow. That's interesting. A little creepy. Yeah. <laughs> Fascinating. <laughs> Remarkable that a seven-year-old mind could create something. Everybody seems to have their own type of interior dialogue mm. or conscience, if you will, but it's my own voice and usually something about my own insecurities or justifying why I shouldn't do something. But again, it's my voice and yours was a little bit different. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. I have to wonder like how psychiatrists and psychologists who might be listening and thinking right now, was this some kind of psychotic break or projection? And religious people might even think it was maybe the voice of God or Jesus or even Satan. Satan. <laughs> right, exactly. That's <laughs> right. where I was going. Like, it's just hard to wrap the mind around that a voice that becomes instructive and nurturing without those experiences because you didn't, you didn't have nurturing adults. Right. Well, I think that's a common thought in question. And I think it has become... Or it's easier to understand when people hear voices who tell them to do bad things. Mm -hmm. They get more press after all, right? Right, right, you know? right. We've come to label them insane or psychotic because there is an impairment in their understanding of reality. Mm -hmm. We put them away into institutions or prisons. The question is, is there a difference if the voices are helping you to do the right thing, the right and good thing, since the voice is still in an impairment in reality, it isn't real. So what else do you remember about those first years of your mom's marriage to Chalmer? I can't imagine the confusion in your mind living in this kind of trauma and chaos. Yes, it was chaos. It, it was more than chaos. Children need to know that they can trust adults to be consistent. And he was consistent at creating chaos. Mm -hmm. and third grade was a pivotal year for me because there was such a challenge in shifting my personality from the outgoing little girl to learning how to survive when the rules were constantly changing. Take, for instance, the idea of telling the truth. 
I did not tell the truth when it came to taking the papers from other students and putting my own name on them. So yes, in a way, mm -hmm. I deserve to be punished, not beaten, mind you, for right. it, but I deserve to be punished for not telling the truth. However, the real confusion comes when you get beaten for telling the truth. It was my eighth birthday in December of my third grade year. Mom had gotten a chocolate cake for me, and it was on top of the refrigerator. This was New Year's Eve, because my birthday's on New Year's Eve, of course, and we were going to have cake after dinner. And when she took the cake off of the top of the refrigerator, she noticed that there were finger swipes through the chocolate icing. Chalmer asked who had been in the cake, and you could tell that he was agitated because that's just who he was, and he'd already been drinking. It's New Year's Eve and all. But for some reason, Chala blamed me, but I don't really even like icing, so I denied what she said. And Mom and Chalmer couldn't just let that go and accused me of lying. And I had seen Chala use the yellow step stool to climb up and to look at the cake. And I even told them that Jim said that icing tastes like X-Lax. Oh <laughs> that's God. a chocolate-flavored laxative for people who might not know. And uh, really gross, disgusting stuff. And it had to be him. I mean, that's logical because how or why would he have said that if he hadn't been the one that swiped his fingers across the cake and tasted it? I mean, what the hell? Like, why do you think that Chala and Jim lied? Why didn't they believe you? Well, why would Jim and Chala admit to it? Because maybe they thought I wouldn't get in trouble because it was my birthday. Mm, okay. And that's the distorted confusion and chaos that I was trying to survive. Both Mom and Chalmer insisted that I own up to saying that I had gotten into the cake, and I knew I hadn't. And I, I remember having to walk back into their room to get the rubber hose and him beating me across my back and legs and shoving me into the kitchen chair and screaming that I was a lying little bitch and a whore and I would have to sit there until I admitted to touching and tasting the cake. And it probably looked like I was just being stubborn when I refused to admit something that I didn't do. In my mind, that was lying. And since I knew I would be spanked and beaten for lying, I wouldn't admit to it. And so the horrible scene continued and neither Jim or Chala owned up. And I recall Chalmer bringing my present out of the room and throwing it in my lap. Here's your goddamn fucking present, you little liar, he said. And then it was an unwrapped black and white sweater. And I sat there trying to choke back the tears because he demanded we not cry. Quit your goddamn belly aching or I'll give you something to really cry about. And, you know, he talked like that all the time and ever so often he'd jerk me out of the chair and keep striking me with the hose and across my legs. And eventually, of course, I gave up and admitted to the deed so he would stop. And then because he thought I had lied and because he said, you're a liar, he told mom to wash my mouth out with soap. So she took me into the bathroom and scraped a bar of dial soap across the bottom of my teeth and said I had to sit there for the next 15 minutes with it in my mouth and I couldn't spit it out. And Chalmer just stood in the bathroom door watching me wretch and making sure I didn't spit it out. That is so f***ed up. Yeah. 
That is uh, your third grade birthday. Yeah, I was. Yeah, I just turned eight, eight years old. That is. Yeah, it's messed up. Seems like those episodes every few months, particularly with me and Billy, mostly Billy, Daddy Chow, as we had to call him, picked on him constantly because he was the weakest being he had an artistic temperament. He'd say, I'll have no goddamn faggot in my house. Okay, well, hold on oh, now. Okay, wait. <laughs> I mean, it is well documented in Uncle Billy's book and the documentary that Chalmer sexually abused Billy, yet he was concerned about him being gay. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Makes no sense. There's nothing logical or consistent in Chalmer's behavior except that you could count on him to be inconsistent and abusive. Later that year, about the second year into the marriage, was the first time I had thoughts of suicide as an eight-year-old oh and, and just longed to die. We'd spent a lot of time at the farm in Bremen during the summers. We had a rather large garden by the barn that sat down over the hill, and Chalmer also planted corn, green beans, lima beans, and larger plots of the farm. We were expected to weed the garden and pick the produce and help mom can or freeze the vegetables. It wasn't a farm to make money for the family, so to speak, or to provide for groceries or anything like that, but it did provide for the family and and he also gave a bunch of it away at work and you know which I'm sure that people were quite appreciative of um, you know it was fresh produce and all and it was just what he did and Chalmer would also spend quite a bit of time mowing the fields because it was like an 88 acre farm which was expansive to me mm -hmm. and I remember it being a lot of hard hot work in the summers. It was humid. I hated being there. I hated hard work, <laughs> as any eight-year-old does. Uh -huh. I just I just hated being there. He had a teal blue Dodge truck that he had bought so that he could take the Cub Cadet riding lawnmower to mow the front yard and the side yard of the property. And mom would ride in the cab of the truck with him, and we would ride in the truck bed or between the Cub Cadet and around it and we would transport that to the farm from Lancaster. And occasionally we would stay at the old farmhouse overnight, but it was run down and old. I mean, it was so old, it had a hand pump in the kitchen that pumped from a well. Mm. And I remember the first summer we spent part of the time there, mom found rat's nest in the old wood oven. Oh. It was disgusting. I mean, it was an old farmhouse. It seemed like a really scary place to me because he told us that the floor might give way. What? I know, and collapse, so to be very, very quiet in the house. Oh now, of course, as an adult, I see that as the manipulation that it was because he just hated uh. us to be happy or have noise or anything. Right. And, of course, I believed him because, you know, as a child. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and sometimes just, uh, you know, one or two of us would go down to the farm with Chalmer. And I, I remember us all working the farm, but I also remember Jim taking the rifle out and target practicing and looking for rabbits or squirrels and 
Chalmer often drank while he was mowing. It was hot and working the farm and stuff. I, you know, I get all that, but I just dreaded when I heard the tractor come back out up the lane from the back fields toward the house because he always found a way to find fault in whatever work we were supposed to have done. He would grab me by the hair and force me to see the weeds that I'd missed or something like that, or the the vegetables that we should have gathered. I missed beans somewhere, the strawberries, and, you know, just stupid shit like that. And, you know, he beat Billy so severely once for holding the grass hand shears wrong. This is way before, you know, you trimmed with a electric trimmer or anything. Right. And he just beat him senseless, you know, because Billy was left-handed. And so because he didn't hold the shears the right way because that, that didn't work that way for a left-handed kid. But, you know, I mean, he just left him with a bloody nose and everything. It was just oh ridiculous. And this was about the time he told both of us, Billy and I both, that if we told mom or anything about what was going on at the farm, like when he took us there by ourselves, that he would kill us and bury us behind the barn. We believed him because, you know, as kids, you believe adults. Mm -hmm. And he showed us where he had buried animals that once used to live on the farm or once that he owned, you know, like the dogs and stuff. And he would show us where things were buried. So we absolutely believed him. And he said that he would just tell people that we'd run away and everyone would believe him because everyone knows that we all didn't get along. Oh my God. That is unbelievable. It's amazing how much children believe adults that carry that kind of well, manipulative you're supposed power. To. They're, right. You know, they're supposed to be your guardian and protector. And why wouldn't you believe him? Especially just given the fact that how he stuck to his word saying if he's going to beat you, yeah. he, he followed through. Yeah. That's what I mean. <laughs> right. Yeah. So you just believe him. So I remember one day when this this whole thought of, I didn't know what suicide was or that concept of suicide. I mean, as an eight-year-old, you don't have that vocabulary. No, uh -uh. So you do know what it feels like to just be tired and want to die. So as an, as an eight-year-old, no, I did not know what that was like. Well, so. let's hope, hope I right. didn't raise you in that, <laughs> to think anything along that line. I was riding in the back of the truck on the way back to Lancaster, and sometimes Chalmer would take the back roads that were very hilly and back through the woods into the backside of Bremen. And he would like to stop at this bar, of course, on the way back and stop and get a beer or two at a bar called the Oasis and have a few drinks. And he'd already been drinking, you know, because we'd been working on the farm. So his driving was already erratic and fast on the dirt roads. You can wipe out easily on a dirt road, especially in the back of a truck. So it was just so frightening to me. He'd look out of the rearview mirror or out of the cab and he'd just laugh at me for being afraid. And I would just be hanging on to the edge of the truck. Now, hold on. You are in the back of a pickup truck. No seatbelt, right? Oh, no. You're no, literally no, just... No. <laughs> there were not seatbelts in cars and trucks at the time. And it was legal for kids to ride in the back of trucks. Oh. It was... That's totally not legal now in the United States. Right. But yeah, we would ride in the back of the cab. So I would just stare between the gap of the cab and the bed. 
I would just kind of focus and I could see the road passing in the gap. And I would just kind of stare and kind of focus so I wouldn't have to look out over the edge of the woods that just seemed so steep to me. I got to beginning to wish that we would just wreck. (laughs) And I started to visualize, I could see myself tumble out of the back of the truck in slow motion and roll down the hill. Or I would think about jumping (laughs) and he would just keep going (laughs) on and on and on. And I would just die. (laughs) And it got to be the same thing every time we'd get to this one dangerous part of the road that I thought that if I just jumped, I knew I would die because it was so steep. And just letting my body rot (laughs) into the forest floor. I could visualize this like a potter rubs out the mistake they make in clay. And this would just be all, all over. It's, it's just such a vivid memory still. I hate that for you. Those thoughts should never have to enter any kid's mind. I want to try and understand why your mom, my my grandma, grandma. Mm-hmm. <laughs> stayed in this marriage. My young memory of her is not like the person that you are talking about. I do not know this person. She was a different person by the time you have any memory of her. As all people do change, by the time you met her, she had aged 30 years. And of course she was different. Chalmer and she had divorced. She was remarried, etc. But your question of complicity is interesting and one that I grappled with a number of times as a child, as a teen, as I grew older, but mostly as I grew older, because you just do. And as a child, I didn't consider or think that mom had any control over the situation with Chalmer. And for the most part, I saw her, and she was actually, just as much a victim of his abuse as we were because she suffered at the hands of his abuse as we did. I felt sorry for her through a child's eyes because it seemed like she was stuck in a no-win situation. She didn't seem like she had a choice. It wasn't until I was studying psychology later in college and then later even in the mid-90s that I read a book by Dr. Judith Herman called Trauma and Recovery that gave me the vocabulary that helped me understand the words of some of the events that happened in traumatic situations. And one of these is the concept of captivity. And I remember reading that and I thought, oh, I don't need this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't need this chapter because her book is a fascinating book and I recommend it to anyone, but because it also talks about political prisoners of war, kidnapped victims, Holocaust survivors and all that. And I didn't consider us with that idea of concept of captivity, but what she elaborates in this particular chapter is the idea of people who have the ability to control others through the use of fear and instability. And I learned that that was Chalmers' tactic in controlling us, 
this idea of captivity and that's what we were. We were captive. Hey fam, thank you so much for listening today. If you have a story you want to share, please visit our website at family-dramapodcast.com and click on send us your story or ideas. While you are there, subscribe to Family Drama so you don't miss an episode. Also, all of our socials are listed in the show notes. Like, follow, share, and subscribe, and please give us your feedback by leaving us a review. 